David Franklin is Chief Curator of the National Gallery of Canada. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. It's great to be here. Now, the reason that we're together is to talk about this wonderful catalogue that you were the uh, editor of called Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo and the Renaissance in Florence, which was uh, put together to accompany the exhibition that took place here in Ottawa in 2005. Yes, that's correct. It was our summer exhibition uh, last uh, year in our 125th anniversary year, so it was quite a big uh, occasion for us. The catalogue even sold out. Yeah, I tried to get a copy of it. I had to borrow one to read. Quite unusual for uh, exhibitions these days, and and an achievement, uh, perhaps a crass achievement, but an achievement nonetheless uh, for the gallery. Well, in a way, though, recognition that, uh, that you did a good job. I mean, the content, obviously, is of interest. Well, I hope so. Um, the, the subject matter is very attractive. Having works by Michelangelo and Leonardo, and Florence itself is such a is such an iconic place and such a, a draw for people as cultural tourists uh, that I think there's a lot of recognition there, and that helped create a, a memorable occasion. Again, for us in our 125th year, we really wanted to do something exciting and, and a bit flashy. They picked the right topic then. Yes, definitely. I'd like to uh, focus on the uh, the form of the book, uh, publishing a catalogue, and what differentiates an exhibition catalogue from, say, a, a scholarly work or a, a typical work of nonfiction. So I'd like to take us sort of through the book and uh, stop along the way. The very first place I'd like to stop is that the book is published by the National Gallery of Canada in association with Yale University Press, why Yale University Press? Well, we like to expand the distribution of our catalogs, and we tender with different external agencies and ask them what they could bring to the project, how they can help with the publication. It takes many different forms. A previous catalog I did actually did the layout with Yale, and in a sense it became their book as much as ours. More typically, as in this case, they just get involved with the distribution itself. Not the printing or the design? Not necessarily the printing or the design, because um, the one fact of all these catalogs, of course, is the deadline of the opening, and so it's much more preferable to, to be able to print close by. Keep that in-house? And yes, as in-house as much as possible. Yeah. You don't want to get egg on your face. No, because if you miss the opening with the catalog, you're in deep trouble, because probably 25% of your catalogs are sold within the first sort of 48 hours, so you need to really be ready at that moment. Ready for the rush. Obviously for the media as well, it's important to distribute copies uh, uh, during the the press preview and so on. So what did Yale bring to the table that others didn't? A really complex network of um, distribution among museums, bookshops around the world. They have that infrastructure that we don't have to distribute the work, say, to Florence or Berlin or, or, or London. So it gives much more visibility to the catalog. They have the sorry. They have the contacts with the various bookshops mm-hmm. in these various places that uh, they will pluck this publication out of their catalog to in these booksellers around the world. It doesn't necessarily bring a lot of revenue to us, but I think it's more for the prestige and for the um, visibility of the product. Yale is a prestigious, very press. prestigious, and probably for art historical, particularly more old mastery kind of art historical publications, it's really regarded as the leading, the most glamorous art art book publisher in, in the world. I mean, there are others, particularly with contemporary art or, 
or Tashin Press yeah. with contemporary photography and so on. But for for old master type works, Yale is really the one you want to work with uh, as much as possible. Okay. And uh, I had a personal relationship with them, and that I published m my own books with them in the past, so that helps also. In terms Your comf of comfort zone. Comfort zone, yeah. exactly, yeah. and uh, knowing the style. Dependability. And so, so it worked out very, very well. Again, it's not so much a financial thing; it's just a prestige uh, thing above all. Moving then to the <clears throat> message from the foundation. It's interesting that that's the first bit of writing in the book from Thomas Dequino, who's the uh, chairman of the board of directors. That's where the money comes from, I imagine, or partly. Uh, I like what he says at the very end of his little sort of one paragraph. He says, for years to come, it will recall the splendors of Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, and the Renaissance in Florence at the National Gallery of Canada. So would you agree that the catalog, in a sense, is designed to recall the splendors? Yeah, I think you have to regard it as a, not a temporary thing or a souvenir, but it is it does record a very particular moment. There is a tremendous amount of planning and rushing to pull off this event. Um, even if that rushing, as it were, takes place over years, there's still a rush to that deadline, and you do the best you can. But with a catalog, you have to be ready on the night, so to speak. So you can't, as with a scholarly book or another kind of book, take extra time at the end or delay the publication. It's more of a stress then, because it has to be right. It has to be right at a certain date. Yeah, so it has to be tremendously precise. But I think everyone regards the catalog as of a particular moment. It's it's out of date, so to speak, the minute that it's published. The beauty of it, in a way, is it is so ephemeral that it, it provides you that that memory and, and functionality for that exhibition. Something that can, then disappears once the show is over. It's capturing a, something that's sort of time dated, but mm. capturing it for. <laughs> eternity unless it sells out and you can't get a hold of it <laughs> absolutely but I think we all we all kind of cringe as authors we cringe a little bit when we look at our catalogs because we know that um, they're imperfect and the best catalog would be written after the exhibition when you've also uh, keep in mind too that you write these things somewhat in the abstract and that you see the works in their individual locations but when they're brought together, it creates a whole different kind of set of relationships, observations, even scholarship when you talk to other curators and specialists who come for the exhibition as well. You suddenly, you suddenly start to cry when you look at the catalog and think, oh, it could have been so much better. So Yeah. Isn't that, though, the yeah. essence of a, of a museum in a way or, or an institution is bringing mm -hmm. together sort of disparate works of art so that uh, they can riff off each other and, and you can compare and contrast. Definitely. Well, the, there are, the, even among specialist uh, art historians, there are a lot of detractors uh, of the exhibition. The idea of an exhibition itself for being, again, ephemeral, also dangerous, immoral in the sense that it's dangerous to travel these works, particularly the old masters. And basically, there should be no exhibitions of old master works. It's just too dangerous. And, and so it's uh, perhaps artificial. Unjustifiable. And artificial, yeah. yes. Plonking these things beside each other. And you can't get the Mona Lisa or Michelangelo's David, so you're always a little bit second best. Yeah, you're missing a great big hole there. I, of course, subscribe to the opposite view, that you learn a great deal from exhibitions. And so it is very much an event in every sense of the word. And, and again... The ideal catalog would be written after the show when you've had a chance to benefit from from all these, both the visual experience but also 
the experience of talking to others that come to the show. Well, why don't you do that then? Do a, <laughs> just to, just to quickly summarize, then you know we've got the we've got the message from the sponsor, then we've got the lenders, sort of a listing of all the lenders here, then the contributing authors, who I assume most of them are attached to the institutions where these work came from, then then the contents, then the director's foreword, then your preface, and then acknowledgments, thanks, and then some really really interesting essays, I, I should say. Uh, three of them, and then the actual catalog itself, which I didn't find anywhere near as interesting, obviously, as the essays. You want to provide some some context to the person that comes in and sees these works. Yeah. You want them to carry this around or not? Well, this is another very interesting debate that that we have: is is what is the catalog? Is it something you can carry around and use in an exhibition, or is it just a souvenir, or is it really just a book of a kind, an ephemeral book? that you have to, to take away and read after the show rather than before the show. And so there are all different ways to, to deal with this problem. And actually, I'm personally, ironically, an advocate for more old-fashioned, a smaller catalog that you can read in the exhibition. But um, one of the issues is now the advent of the audio guide. So mm-hmm. museums want you, frankly, to pay both for this book but also for the audio guide, which then becomes... Uh, a surrogate catalog or a surrogate label for the work in the show. So, I mean, sure, you could t- you could lug this catalog around. You could sit down in front of each work, a hundred mm-hmm. of them or so, mm-hmm. and spend uh, fifteen minutes reading it. But you know, that, that yeah, it's pretty impractical, and and also you probably run into a lot of trouble with other visitors and guards who would think you were crazy to be spending so much time in front of one work, for example. But there's yeah, most people just go spend about five seconds and say, check, I did that, did that, did that, right? Or, or if they have the audio guide, they become like zombies, you know, transfixed uh, in their own <laughs> little world or like with their iPod. Uh, but it's a very artificial experience, uh, I think. But there's a lot of pressure on the curator to do a catalog that in a sense is impractical because we want to have these two areas of commerce uh, for the institution. which is Ugly head of commerce rearing. Somewhat, somewhat, I think. But, but for me, this particular catalog, obviously, to go backwards in a sense, one of, ways, one of the ways to get, it's very difficult to get these loans, and one of the ways is you tell the lending institution that, of course, you'll bring to bear all new scholarship and the, the work will be cataloged in a very extensive, uh, in-depth way. So... Seems to me, sorry to interrupt, though, that the real scholarship would take place once they're all together, so you could go through and really compare them while you're, you know, next next to them. You go through, you think about them, you can actually go and see them side by side. Seems to me that that would be this fertile ground where real scholarship could take place. No, you're absolutely right, and many of the juxtapositions. Uh, in the show were, were unique. Um, many of the works had not been, say, in the artist's studio for 500 years and been brought together for the first time. So the, these kinds of uh, relationships were really unique to those few months that the show was here. And that that becomes a different kind of scholarship where really you write a review or you write an essay, which I'm trying to do, an essay of, of thoughts and reflections upon the exhibition itself. But the catalog is a very artificial structure where curators are in their own little boxes in their institution, in their own kind of cubicles, writing their long, detailed catalog entry, but they don't necessarily interact with the other works in the show. 
And often with these shows, it's a tightrope too. You don't even know sometimes till the very last minute what works will be in the exhibition. So yeah. it's very difficult to create the ideal grouping of works. You just I hope people realize that it's really an approximation again, a very ephemeral experience. David Franklin, chief curator at the National Gallery of Canada. I think what's interesting, though, about this catalogue for me as the reader of it is that you do try to get a bit at both of these areas. The fact that you've got these three essays up the front, the one that you wrote on Florentine drawing, then there's one on painting, and then there's one on sculpture. And you do you, you come up with some really interesting selection criteria, a little bit of controversies, talking about mannerism and high renaissance as being artificial mm-hmm. technique and tools. This is the most interesting part of this catalog for the reader. I think so. What, what we tried to do was set up really two books. One, the catalog proper, with these very detailed entries, frankly, over-detailed. Yeah. But part of the way you get the loan is by promising this amount of detail which is, in a way, very little use to the visitor. But then the first part of the catalog that you described to set up very general essays, not, not for the specialists, really, but more for the general public to try to, to locate them. And I really regard the essays as a, more of a textbook for students and really had nothing to do with the exhibition, the experience of the exhibition at all, unless you were had the time to read them in advance. But invaluable, though, too, I think, because it does it really does do a lovely job of putting the actual work into context. I hope so. And one of the things that you find, even with very uh, well-studied periods like the Renaissance, is there's a, there's a shortage of, of synthesis. There's a shortage of general, just putting general points down, which is often, it's much easier for, for curators and scholars to write very detailed research. But to do, I'm very passionate that we should try to have these more overarching views of a period. So I think it's it's unique that uh, even for a period like the Florentine Renaissance, it's unique that you could find one place, an essay on drawing, an essay on sculpture, an essay on painting. So I really regard that as a, a the textbook uh, uh, area of the, of the work, and I was very determined that it would have this slightly schizophrenic uh, structure, uh, this book. That's also to ensure that it has a life beyond the show. Now it's sold out, so you can reprint it? No, museums are very callous institutions about things like that. I mean, once they once the show is over, you're on to the next. And uh, reprinting a catalog is a pretty rare rare event. So, even though for me it's a textbook, it certainly w- won't be reprinted, un- unfortunately. But you'll find most muse- most catalogs now will have this essay structure. But generally, they're much more specialized essays of only interest to other scholars. And this is what I was determined to do, is not to fall into this trap of just doing a catalog for a small group of people, but uh, to try to make it as general, serious, very serious, I hope, but as general as possible. Particularly thinking, of, frankly, of a show in Ottawa, a show in Canada. There's never been an exhibition like this in Canada, so thinking about the Canadian public, you wouldn't necessarily have done this catalog in Florence this way where there's much more familiarity with the material, but you want, in Canada, I think, to introduce the material in a more gentle way, in a more general way, and that's what we try to do. And perhaps that's why it's sold out. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we could get into the content, because it, it really is fascinating, just uh, although we can't spend too much time in the actual content. But it was just really uh, interesting to, to read. The drawing was so important. It was at the core, the zinio, of the whole Florentine art world. 
Yeah, it's very important. I think we tend to now have a kind of our own, as it were, hierarchy of the genres where we love painting and we love finished work. But in the Renaissance, I like to stress that it was really the complete opposite, that uh, most of these artists really, their only preoccupation was drawing and design. And that's for them what where their genius was and, and where the interest was and they would lose interest immediately after the drawing was was made yeah, yeah. it wasn't it wasn't <laughs> something that they had to complete it was a, i love what you say or i guess it's you know it's fairly common knowledge but leonardo talking about the fact that drawing is actually about understanding and investigating like a science and mm-hmm. i guess once he's figured it out he didn't, i don't know going to do the rest of the painting i'm going to go into something else yeah i think they regarded the completion of their work as a rather pedestrian something for artisans to, to produce this, to have this workshop where you had this assembly line, this factory, and made art, they really wanted to regard themselves more like poets or or, um, or scientists uh, or intellectuals, basically. And that was not to get your hands dirty with the piece of sculpture, but just to create a perfect design. Yeah, you and use the word pure quite um, often. Do yeah. I? <laughs> yeah. I can't remember. In a way, it's a very modern concept that's really born in this period. I stress it because it, it obliterates uh, our idea of what art is. Uh, again, this focus on the painting, the finished work, the framed work. But mm. it's really the birth of a modern c- conception of the artist. Um, but one that's very closely allied to their interaction with, with intellectuals, again, with scholars and writers and poets, that they wanted to see themselves on that same intellectual plane. Um, because what, they sort of been second-class citizens? Oh, very much so, yeah. yes. Um, the, the, guild of the, the guild of the painters was actually part of the... It's the same guild that the uh, pharmacists belonged to. <laughs> Not to denigrate pharmacists, mm-hmm. but uh, certainly they were regarded as, uh, as kind of working-class artists in this period came generally from a very working-class background. And, and certainly if you were an aristocrat, you would never allow your children to become artists. Uh, they were really rather louche characters. They were a little bit on the margins of society, so this is really the beginning of artists trying to raise their social status. Although, again, uh, that still holds true, you know. <laughs> of course. You know, it's a bohemian lifestyle that's mm. profligate. You need to be a lawyer or a mm. doctor or not, a, not an artist. Definitely. Or a poet. So. That, that, didn't, uh, that didn't change. No. But it's why, in this catalog, it's why we put the essay on drawings first, was really to stress that this is where this is where it begins and where it ends for many of these artists. And you'll see it literally in the National Gallery in terms of our acquisition policy. We put a great deal of stress on the purchase of drawings. We're trying to acquire Michelangelo drawing at the moment um, rather than on paintings uh, in this period because, again, the gallery is, like many institutions, has made the mistake we must find a painting by Michelangelo. Yeah. But there aren't any. I mean, he just basically didn't, did very few of them. Well, plus you're getting right at the, co- at the, and, the intent yeah. and the core of what these artists were all about anyway, right? You're getting something much more original and much more... Significant, significant. to them. Absolutely, yeah. This, again, is why we focus so much, even in the exhibition and the selection, it was about 50% works on paper. And this wasn't just laziness or just because those works were easier to borrow. Believe me, it's just as hard to borrow a Michelangelo drawing as it is a painting by one of his contemporaries. It's the same level of difficulty for the institution, but this was just to try to reflect what's true of the period. David Franklin, chief curator, the National Gallery of Canada. 
what's interesting throughout the uh, the commentary and also the uh, the essays and, and the, the catalogue itself, Vasari's lives of the uh, the artists plays a the book plays a plays a pretty important role both in terms of letting us know a bit about the, the biography of these these artists. But there's something quite interesting that you talk about too that we maybe just touch on, and that's the fact that Vasari apparently uh, this came out in 1550 effectively ended the emphasis on the figure movement and gesture in favor of a more socially aware art expressing literary content. Mm-hmm. Is he aggrandizing them, but then also shutting them down, or? No, it's very important. I mean, people may be familiar with Giorgio Vasari publishing these lives of the artists. As you mentioned, in 1550, it's really the first, through the birth of art history as a, as a subject, as, as a written discipline, very, very crucial text. Um, but Vasari, of course, we tend to read Vasari backwards, but of course he's writing in a particular moment, a particular social context, a particular, for a particular culture of which he was a part. Uh, in the Medici court, he was really fighting for his own career and his own survival, so was promoting an art that was much more about narrative, as you said, much less about the individual figure, much less about artistic integrity and passion, the kind of Michelangelo-esque, uh, uh, almost undisciplined, almost you know, very uh, aggressive kind of art. He wanted something that was much more tame, much more easy to interpret for an aristocrat or a courtier. I mean, so was he just being diplomatic then? Was he just sort of saying, he, he probably, he, he was with... Leonardo and Michelangelo, but because he you know, didn't want to get his head cut off or hung upside down. Mm-hmm. Partly, yeah, it was partly he just, he, he was fighting for his own career and his own survival, so he was, he was writing the history of art in a, in a way that would suit him and his own position at court to make him number one. So he was fighting for his, his life, fighting for his career in a very ruthless yes. intense atmosphere. Um, Which we, we, yeah, we, we don't seem to comprehend that, that it's it's life and death. Absolutely. For these artists, it was literally life and death at times. And your career was very dependent on a very small number of patrons and pleasing them and being part of a, a circle of patrons is very important. So Vasari, I like to think, is almost like the first yuppie. He was just very career conscious, very practical, pragmatic person, but also Almost Machiavellian. Yeah, but also, in a way, he was also a very mediocre person. He didn't have the same integrity that Leonardo and Michelangelo had. And other artists, like Pontormo, had had some of the same options as Vasari, so to speak, but their desire and passion and integrity, they shipwrecked themselves, literally, uh, most of these artists, just because they couldn't, they just could not sort of sublimate their emotions, so to speak, in a way that Vasari very practically, very coolly uh, uh, analyzed what needed to be done. Bit like and, and yeah, <laughs> I can't comment on that. <laughs> but uh, but sorry, and the proof was in the pudding. He had an incredibly successful career, was one, probably the richest artist uh, of all time. Could fresco acres of ceiling in a month. You know, he was fast, expedient, everything that patrons liked and you have to sympathize with some of these patrons if you've got on the one hand you might commission Leonardo and ten years later you end up with nothing commission something from Vasari ten days later you get exactly what you wanted so I think he's more of a businessman definitely pleasing his customers absolutely but very little internal um, kind of emotional content brought to bear on on his art I happen to like like Vasari's art but 
very much, so I don't mean to denigrate him. In fact, I personally, and one of the points of this exhibition was to show Vasari's art, because his book is read, but Vasari as an artist is rather neglected as a subject. He's but remembered, it's fascinating. Yeah, remembered as a biographer. He would remember himself as an artist, not as a biographer. The, the lives were really written as a kind of a directive from the Medici to not only write the lives of the artists, no one had that kind of objective historian sense, but to write a text which glorified the Medici as well as collectors. So the patrons of the art. As patrons and, uh, and collectors. Majestic. And, mm-hmm. and, yeah. and if you noticed, scattered through the lives are many, many references to the Medici <laughs> and their glory and to ostracize or to write out of history their rivals. It's, a, it's very much a product of that court as well, just like Vasari's art. There's a, an interesting uh, point about Vasari is that his own collection of drawings, he sort of instituted a new type of, of cataloging, uh, of actually collecting, which is, of course, interesting to, to any collector, books or otherwise. This, you suggest, is uh, the place where the documentation of collecting originated, at least of, of drawings. I don't know about everything no, else. Specifically for drawings, he was really the first, not the first collector of drawings, but no. the first to in parallel with writing complete history of art to try to collect being Tuscan, being a Florentine, recognizing the primacy of drawing, Vasari was the first to try to collect an example of every uh, draftsman in the history of art to try to get an example. And then he would himself mount these drawings on sheets and and write the attribution in very florid writing. Uh, the attribution uh, that he and sometimes that he himself had made uh, on these sheets or if he could get five drawings by an artist he would mount five drawings on one sheet with the attribution so it's a really interesting it's really the birth of connoisseurship sounds very Aristotelian it's a really interesting project and of course a lot of people tried to reconstruct his book and it would be a fantastic exhibition to bring all these drawings such as we know them together uh, in one place. His collection. His collection. Yeah. It would be possible to do that, but it's never been done. And of course, he made many mistakes, and now with modern art historical knowledge, we can see sometimes where he made mistakes, but it's, his decisions are always interesting, and often he was right as well. So it's a remarkable achievement that he, that he put into this libro, this book of drawings. Yeah, it sounds like a tower of, of energy as well. What a yes. productive human being. It's inconceivable to me now, um, in this period, where, you know, now we have computers and, and photo archives and digital images and so on, but how these people just had the visual memory to compile this knowledge is quite astonishing. And just the sheer energy and, and the difficulty of, uh, of what they had to go through to achieve, say, the writing of that book um, is, is remarkable. And again, scholars tend to focus rather tediously on the errors, but the first thing you have to sit back and say is, this is incredible that he was able to write this book. Mm-hmm. And so we've, uh, we touch on the, the, the three essays at the front of the, of the catalog, and, and they're, they're very interesting. And in fact, there's one little line here that I, I like in the second essay, and it's discussing Leonardo's dictum of painter and the poet share the goal of rendering visible the movements of the mind of man. Well, it's quite a quite an ambitious quote. I think, somewhat like I was saying before, that this desire of the artist to raise their status, they have to engage with some of these concepts in other in other fields, uh, above all poetry. And Leonardo, in particular, had a very interesting rivalry with the idea of poetry and felt that painting was superior. 
for its immediacy and for its ability to render kind of subjective emotion. Sort of but a gut instinct, it's not being uh, mediated with, through words. There's bang, there it is. And mm-hmm. But rather mediated through drawing, through life drawing, through finding remarkable faces in society that will, will suit what he wants to represent. So in a way, he's setting down a challenge to poetry to equal what he can achieve through his art and of course many of these artists also wrote poetry as well and so there's a very there's a whole other subject there um, the relationship between the poetry that they wrote Michelangelo of course and their art it's quite fascinating because there's always this tension I think they want to believe that what they're doing is superior but society tells them that they are inferior and that poetry really is one of the highest of all art forms so more cerebral I suppose definitely yeah yeah the uh, catalog itself, then, it, it takes up the bulk of the, uh, the book. And the, and the catalog itself, basically, is a text beside co- very colorful, beautiful renditions, printing of the, uh, of the actual works themselves. I must say, I found those a little bit tiresome, a little bit, uh, you know, one of these paintings is not like the other, and uh, compared to the essays. This is typical of the catalog, I imagine. Not necessarily. I mean, the approach could be quite the opposite that the maybe the essays would be more for the scholars and the catalog entries would be rather brief more like label texts Um, in this case I agree with you I mean I think the catalog entries are really almost like miniature essays they're very insular trying to verify a date or location or provenance but then they describe things that are patently Mm self-evident as well that's true I think I tried to explain a little bit the context for the catalog entries. Again, one is that it's very hard to borrow these works, so you have to promise that you're going to do the work for the institution, let's say, by providing them with a very extensive documented entry that then they can use in future for their own sort of self-knowledge at those institutions. So you're sort of saying, okay, if you give us your work, then we'll give you a couple couple of hundred or five hundred words. Yeah. And that's important to them because a lot of these works had never been catalogued before. So you're you're bringing their work out of a total vacuum into the realm of scholarship, into that kind of continuity of scholarship where it'll be discussed and where it will be known. And uh, so you're giving them information, which is very valuable to a museum. How are you giving it to them, though? By publishing it in this form, but aren't you getting the, the institutions, the people from the institutions themselves, to write? Not write? necessarily, no. or but but we're also paying them as individual authors. So maybe that institution, for whatever reason, didn't have that as a priority, or didn't have the money to publish that particular work in a different context. So even if it's their own curator, it doesn't necessarily mean that that work ever would have been crystallized um, by that individual curator but the inspiration of the exhibition the inspiration of being paid um, could could then bring that scholarship, force them to write it down which they may not even do at their own institution. So what is the scholarship? Like, What's the objective of these blurbs? And typically they are about that, right? They're about yeah, they're long. 500 words. Some of them are quite long. long. What is the objective of I think it's to provide really a microcosm, a complete, a fairly complete record of if you just have that work and here's your text, just to understand that work in no other context, but really just in as much detail as possible. For, for example, like, uh, the like date. Where, you know, the date? 
patronage. I, I stressed to each of the authors I wanted them to talk about subject matter, which is sometimes neglected, provenance, uh, interpretation. So they're really miniature essays, uh, in again, in a, in a vacuum, frankly, about those works of art, providing as much detail. But frankly, too, you also have to flatter these individual individuals by giving them scope to show off, to go into a lot of detail. If you say to one of the greatest authorities, say, on Leonardo drawings in the world, well, can you write us 25 words? They're going to say, well, get lost. I mean, do it yourself. But if you say, well, you have a thousand words to, to really write, as it were, a definitive... Um, Even if they're a great scholar and a lousy like writer, you're still going to make that offer. Yeah, absolutely, because it's a way to... One of the points of the catalog, which may not be so obvious, is to really, for the prestige of our institution, to have some of the greatest authorities writing for our catalog is also gives us a lot of prestige. Even if, word <laughs> even if some of them can't write very well. Um, or <laughs> the even name, I guess that's interesting, yeah, because the, from the lay person's perspective, I mean, I saw your name, I, I don't recognize any other names. Yeah. But obviously, if you're in the field, these, these are big names, right? Yeah, in fact, it's a ruthless process. You can't imagine how many enemies I made by not including oh, no. people to write the entries. Now, what about touching? What about mm-hmm. touching their prose? Are you, as the editor, do you, you want to have some sort of continuity? Yes, I think you need a separate discussion with the editors, um, perhaps without me in the room, because I think I was told this is probably the most ambitious catalog we've ever done in terms of number of authors. It's obviously a very large uh, publication. How many pages are there? <laughs> I think there are about 30 authors. Um, yeah, 365 pages, and it's a big sort of folio size. To so I rather quietly started this publication engaged the authors and then at some point I had a meeting with the head of publications where he kind of looked at me and said you know what this is going to become and I said not really because you know I'm, I'm a bit naive about these things but um, but the editors did tremendous work. So you're, you got your editors from the National Gallery, they did edit the stuff that came, came in we both, I edited for content, as it were, and they edited for style. And, and then tried you didn't put any noses out of joint during that? No, I think not. I mean, I think we, we got all good reaction. Okay. You know, it self, sounds self-congratulatory, but there's tremendous professionalism among the editors at the National Gallery and our publications department. So, But there's yeah, certainly there's professionalism there, but what about all these people that submitted from around the world? You know, don't dick around with my prose. I spent a lot of time doing that. I'm the expert. Don't touch my prose. Well, you get a lot of that in, in the world of publishing, not just in art history, but um, I think I think the fact that it's a catalog kind of softens those opinions because it's a collective enterprise and there's a recognition that we need some kind of house style to unify the book. Otherwise, the public will just be mystified, I think. And also, frankly, I tried to choose authors that I knew would write in a fairly clear style, or at least I gave them a sort of series of issues that I want to discuss, so I felt that even if there were stylistic differences, there would be thematic unification. And Personally, I like individual voice in the authors, but at the same time, I think that if you had the patience to read the catalog, you would find most of the same issues discussed in each entry. Just finally then, uh, who made the choice of the size and the, the shape and whether or not to, to go full color or not with the images of the different paintings and drawings and sculptures. That, uh, again, it starts with the curator's vision of what the, they would like the catalog to be, but then there are extensive discussions with publications and 
with the designer. We had a wonderful designer on this project. From in-house? This was the design was done out out of house uh, in this case. Who's the designer? Fugazi is the name of the company in Montreal. And they did a fantastic job. They, they're really sensitive. They look at the content as well as the images and try to get something that they think is very unified. They produce several different concepts and then a team of us look at them and narrow it down. And They have to be very patient, the designers. They keep going back and, and making little changes and, or big changes and modifying until you get the, the format that you, that you want. So it's really, in the end, it's kind of a community decision. I have to say the curator, to some extent, drops out after the beginning because the designers are the ones that really, I think, have to resolve the issues. But to summarize, then, what differentiates an exhibition catalog from any other kind of book? The first thing that comes to mind is the sort of imperfection of it, that it's ephemeral for a particular event, for a particular moment in time, a particular emotion, almost. It's a race against time to really do the best you can do. It's an imperfect type of publication, and no author would expect to have the time to really perfect their, polish their prose, or bring all their ideas to bear. I think it's a collective enterprise as well for the authors, and I think they recognize that too, that something that you have to be a team player to do. But uh, I suppose the other thing is that it's, in hard historical terms, it's become a very important mechanism for us to get new research out. It's kind of a record too, um, obviously. Yeah. It's a very important, a lot of new scholarship goes into exhibition catalogs almost inadvertently. And when I talked again about the detail, the sort of almost tedious detail of some of the catalog entries, that's also because it's a place where much new research is published for the first time, and so people want to go into a lot of detail about it. So the main purpose of a catalog, I think, speaking as an art historian, is to put out different ideas, different bits of new research. So it's, it's also a very original publication. There will be things for the future forever that will only be recorded here, so it's also, even though it's ephemeral, it's still a valuable tool, and we talked about the permanence, I hope, of the essays as well, so it has this odd schizophrenic life, ephemeral but permanent, but something that every scholar in the field will reckon with this catalog, because they'll be looking for new information, and this is the vehicle for uh, producing a lot of new research for our historians, more than the published book, which, which has a different, very different um, process involved with its production and so on. Schizophrenic, too, in the sense that it's got two distinct audiences. You've got scholars, and then you've mm -hmm. got the, the visiting public who want to use it as a, some sort of a guide or some sort of an introduction to what they're going to see. Yeah, it's rare to find that in the same publication. I think a lot of scholars, academics, dream of producing a blockbuster uh, bestseller book, and so will write. Generally, we'll think about students, undergraduates, and we'll kind of write to that audience, hoping that they'll be able to sell a few more copies. To universities? Yeah. yeah. That's the gold mine for any academic, I think, certainly speaking for our historians, is academic publishing, yeah. undergraduate, writing an undergraduate textbook is the only way to make any money uh, as an academic writer. But then you'll also write books that are just for basically... 10 other people who will only read the footnotes anyways to see if they're criticized. So I think our, our historians generally work in, in this way for one type of an audience or another. But the catalog provides an occasion where these two different approaches are, as it were, wedded. Or again, writing for a general public is really the most difficult thing 
as you know, I'm sure for any any academic, we can write for ourselves all day long, but to try to mediate what you want to say, which I think is very, very important, if you can't express yourself simply, simply then you've got a bit of a problem probably with your own thinking and your own ideas. I'm very anti-jargon as an academic. I hope that comes out a little bit in this publication as well. Great. Well, thanks very much for shedding light on the unique nature of exhibition catalogs as published as books. I've been talking with David Franklin, who is the chief curator at the National Gallery of Canada in Ottawa. Thank you, Nigel. My pleasure.